That was a lot. And now we turn to the most important part. Can you please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20, and as you do, church family, you might want to buckle up a little bit this morning because this final commandment is not a small one. Now, this concluding commandment might cut deeper than any of the other nine that we have looked at thus far. And so let us lean in as we read verses 1 to 2 and then verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Uh, I said that you might want to buckle up because the 10th the commandment that we're looking at this morning is, it's just different from all of the rest that we have studied together. The, the other nine commandments had applications, uh, somewhat objective applications that eventually got to the heart, but they were primarily about our actions. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't do these things. But the final command feels different, doesn't it? The first nine were about outward and objective things that we may or not do, but the 10th commandment is a matter of the heart. It has to do with our desires. It explicitly forbids thoughts that, that others might not ever see or know about, and, and it forbids thoughts that don't even sound that bad to us. It simply says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, in today's housing market, that's easier said than done. But still, this, this commandment doesn't seem to forbid anything horrible in our lives. There's, there's no murder. There's no adultery. There's no lying or false witness. It simply forbids the act of desiring to have something that is not yours. Friends, this, I think that this is because... We should, we should take this seriously because this is in a greater way, uh, it's different than the other nine commandments and it's, it's hard on us because it speaks deeply to us and to our daily tendencies. This commandment lands hard on us because it gets to the discontent of our hearts more than any of the other nine. And I believe that that is very intentional on God's part. I believe that this is God's way of concluding the Decalogue, concluding the Ten Commandments with a crystal clear reminder that all of these commandments ultimately have to do with our hearts before him and our desperate need for God's grace. And so just in case you think that you snuck by the other nine without any guilt or conviction, the tenth comes in and does not allow any of us to think of ourselves as not in need of God's grace. In fact, the 10th commandment does something very important for us. It reveals to us the greatest need of our hearts and the greatest source of strength for our hearts and for our lives before God. Listen, our ability 
to live a peaceful and happy life, our ability to obey and follow God in, in all areas of life, and even for the rest of the nine commandments, our ability there will ultimately depend on whether we have found the answer to our covetousness, whether we have found the answer to our discontent in this life or not. Listen, the hunt for happiness the hunt for contentment in this life and where that leads you will determine so many things about the life that you live on a daily basis. And so, listen up, men and women who spend endless time thinking about having that house or that new car or that new group of friends or that new outfit and the happiness that you think it might give. Listen up, college students who covered that scholarship or that internship or that 4.0 or that new relationship and who believe that they will give the happiness that you need. Listen up, young moms who covered a clean and tidy home and the peace that comes with it and think that happiness is found there. Listen up, dads who covet power and respect and control. Listen up, pastors who covet success in ministry and a growing budget and a building plan and any number of seemingly good things. Listen up, all of us. Buckle up, in a sense, because God has some very good things to say to our hearts this morning. In all of our longings, in all of our desires, God wants to satisfy our hearts with true happiness in him. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. In a discontented world, God's people can find true contentment in him. In a discontented world, God's people can find true contentment in him. And we have three points. Number one, discontentment. Number two, false contentment. And number three, true contentment. Okay, that's where we're headed. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, discontentment. This commandment, verse 17, simply says, you shall not covet. But what does it mean to not covet? What does it mean to have covetous thoughts towards your neighbor's house or wife or oxen or anything else? Well, a simple Webster dictionary definition is that to covet is to feel inordinate desire for what belongs to another. And that seems pretty near to the biblical definition as well. The Hebrew word here has to do with, with deep desire for something. It, it means to inordinately treasure something or to consider as, as dear to our souls. And, and the fact that in verse 17, we see the word neighbor three times repeated, that seems to indicate that what is being spoken of here is not just general desires, but things that belong to another. We're looking to people rather than to God for our desires. I don't think we need much more of a definition than this, do we? We get it. And we get it because we all do this. We all crave things. We all see things that our, our neighbors or our fellowship group members or our Instagram followers have. And we, we feel this need in our heart to have those things and that our, that our happiness is dependent upon getting them. John McKay says this, he says, a, coveting is a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. It, it's not simply wanting something we don't have, it's wanting something that someone else has. It's not bad to want things. It's not bad to have desires in our hearts, but covetousness 
is a lack of satisfaction and peace with our own possessions, our own status, our own situation, and it's discontent about these things that comes about because we have compared ourselves to others and we think that we've come up short. Our discontent comes from looking at lives around us and being disappointed in them as we compare ourselves to them. Joe Rigney says that covetousness is wanting something so much it makes you fussy. Covetousness, he says, wants what the other guy has. Envy, differently, is being angry that the other guy has it. Covetousness is oriented towards the neighbor's possessions, envy towards the man himself. It's wanting something so much that it makes you fussy. Listen, covetousness is discontent in action. It's our hearts expressing that they are not happy in our current circumstances and that they need something more to have peace. And we know this, don't we? We know it. We, we do not need to fight to find ourselves in the 10th commandment here today. No, this one is easy, and it's so easy because our hearts are so often discontent with our circumstances. Our hearts are so dissatisfied with where we are at. We, we long for something different in life. We, we look at those around us, we scroll through social media, we watch HGTV, we see Chip and Joanna Gaines in their beautiful homes, we see our friends getting married while we remain single, we see other people having a car that actually works while ours is repaired every day, we see people who actually enjoy their careers out there, and oh, that's possible, that's not me. We see classmates who have clarity about the major that they're in and, and where they're going in life. We see those who don't ever have to work a night shift like we have to work. We see those who don't ever have to change a dirty diaper or those who don't ever have to open a bank account to see if there's enough money in it to buy that loaf of bread. We see those who deal, don't deal with chronic pain and we look at ourselves and we go discontent. This is a big deal. And this is true of all of our hearts, whether we covet physical things or relational things or societal position. We, we often look at those around us and grow discontent. We covet in our hearts and we become fussy about it. Our hearts are not happy. Our hearts grumble. They complain. They, they fester in our discontent and they refuse to accept our lot in life. We assume that God is against us because we don't have what others have. Friend, there is nothing that will steal your strength and your joy in life more than a covetous heart. Joy and covetousness cannot commingle in one's heart. One will always evict the other. Again, it's not that we can't ever desire things or, or have wants. It's, it's not that we can't ever pursue our dreams, but it's, it's, it's what we do with these things. How much do we crave? How much do we idolize and obsess over that which we do not have? However much you do will be a significant determining factor in your level of joy and peace in life and how discontent you are. And how discontent you are Oh, it will determine what you do with your lives. It will determine your actions on a daily basis. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two is false contentment. So discontentment is a very powerful thing. 
Discontentment will make you do almost anything in life, which is why I think that this commandment is the last of the Ten Commandments because God knows that covetousness, being, being dissatisfied with our current lives and longing for that which is not ours will lead us inevitably towards sinful actions against God and against other people, right? It's covetousness that makes us steal. It's covetousness that leads us to texting that person who's not a spouse, our spouse, because we are dissatisfied. It's, it's covetousness that makes you bear false witness in order to discredit someone else and make yourself look better. Listen, your hearts, our hearts, they were made by God to be happy and full. Your heart was not meant to feel empty and depressed. And so when we feel discontent, when we feel empty and depressed in our current circumstances, we always look for something to fill us up, don't we? It's what we all do. It's like getting hungry. Your stomach growls and you walk right to the refrigerator, right? It's like second nature for me. The speed with which I can eat an entire bag of Doritos is just plain scary. Anything to fill my appetite. It's it's the same with our souls. We are made by God to feel full and happy. That's what God wants for us. That's what he's designed us for. His heart is that our lives would be abounding in his goodness and joy. But when we don't feel full because of the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world or because the stress at work or because of a conflict with your spouse, or because of a parenting issue, or because of health problems, when we don't feel full, when we feel spiritually and emotionally hungry for something more in our lives, we often run to things that we think can satisfy our hunger and make us content, but ultimately cannot. This is false contentment. Have you ever been at work and you've been really hungry mid-afternoon and you know you're going home and going to have a full meal when you walk home, but you walk past that, that break room and you see that box of donuts on the counter and it's like four days old, but it doesn't matter because it's calling you. You know it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to really fulfill your hunger, but you go after it anyways and it might feel good for a few minutes, but 30 minutes later, you're still longing for that dinner. Welcome to my life. This is who I am. I, I, I will have not eaten all day long, and then I see that hers potato bag, and I'll just, I'll think that that is the answer to all my life's problems. Church, this is what we do with our souls. We covet fullness. We want fullness. We want contentment. We, we often make the easy and the quick decision towards what we think will satisfy us, but ultimately will not. We run after all of these things. Think about the rich young ruler with me for a moment in the Gospels. This rich young ruler, he came to Jesus because he was hungry. He was hungry to be full. He wanted to be satisfied. He said to Jesus, Jesus, tell me how I can inherit eternal life. He wanted true fulfillment. And Jesus said to him, go and sell everything that you have and you will have eternal life. And Jesus said that not because selling everything you have and becoming poor is the way to become a Christian. No, Jesus said that because he knew that the rich young ruler was filled up with empty things and until he turned away from the Doritos and the donuts of this life, until he turned away from the riches and the physical comforts and the societal positions, until he turned away from all of those things, he would never have space in his soul for true satisfaction in Christ. And it says... 
sorrowfully that he went away sad because he had many possessions. Or think about Romans chapter 1 and how Paul the Apostle says that every single human being that has ever lived knows the reality of God in their souls. They know of God and they know that his divine nature is good, but we as a human race, have refused to give thanks to him. Or in other words, we have refused to find our contentment in him. And so he says, Paul says, that we have been given over to all kinds of other passions. He says that we have decided to worship and serve the creature, things that are made by God, rather than God, the one who made those things, the creator. We have chosen to find our contentment in sex and power and possessions. Romans chapter one, verse 29, it says that we have been given over to covetousness. We've refused to find our contentment in God, and so we have found false contentment in things that simply are not God. Church, this is the world we live in, isn't it? This is, Christian, this is your own heart. This is what we do. When life becomes difficult, we often run after many things that cannot satisfy. For some of us, we're like the rich young ruler because we have everything. We have so much that we are often the ones that other people look at and covet after. We, we have the money, we have the home, we have the oxen, or at least the nice car. We have the marriage, we have the seemingly happy kids, and we have all this stuff because we have just coveted it and given our lives to get it, and for some reason, God has allowed us to obtain it, but in the midst of all of those possessions, in the midst of all of that stuff, we just want more we're still hungry we have no more satisfaction than when we began that's some of us in this room others of us are different we we want all those things but for some reason god in his province has not seen fit to give them to us and so what do our lives look like our lives do not look like the rich young ruler but rather they look very much more poor but in our poorness we're angry in our anger, we're frustrated at God and other people. A, a covetous heart will lead people who do not have what they covet after. It will lead them to become angry and bitter. They will fuss. Listen to James chapter 4. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen up. James says that the angry husband, the angry wife, the angry teenager, the frustrated employer or employee who's constantly complaining about their situation, James says that anger and fights and quarrels they're not forced upon us by other people around us. No, they come from within us. We fight and we quarrel. We say belittling things. We, we mock our spouse or, or tear down that person in the grocery store line because we, we covet something from them or from someone else or from God and have not received it. And so we are angry and bitter that we have not been given that thing. Listen, if you are a negative person, if people would think of you and saying, yeah, they're, they're, they're negative, they're always looking at the bad, if, if you're critical, if you have a hard time being kind to those around you or a hard time not expressing your anger when disappointed, if you lack joy in life, James says the problem is not other people and it's not your circumstances. 
but rather it's the covetousness and the wrong desires of your own heart. You have coveted respect, you've coveted peace, you've coveted an easy life, you've coveted money, you've coveted some idea of what you think life in this world should have been for you, and when you don't experience it, the result is even more discontent and ultimately more strife in your soul and in your life. I remember when I was younger, I used to work for a land clearer. We drove really big machines and we used chainsaws all day long. It was a great job. But it was a dangerous job, and one day one of my coworkers got significantly hurt. I think a branch fell down and, and basically tore off skin, like significant amounts of flesh from this arm, and in the moment we didn't know what to do, but we had a project to do. We just wanted him to shake it off, but something needed to be done. And so one of my coworkers, who I guess was a, a father, ran to his car to get the first aid kit, and he brought it back, and he opened it up, and all that was inside was a bunch of Thomas the Train Band-Aids. And so we got to work. We started peeling them apart and just sticking them on, like, in a, you know, like a line of 10 of them just to handle it. And then we got back to work. We, we thought that would be enough. It wasn't enough. He needed to go to the doctor. The wound was that bad. Church, covetousness is like having a gaping wound in your soul and trying to cover it up with many different kinds of Band-Aids. There's a very real need in your soul. God put that need there. He, he desires you to desire things. He desires contentment for your soul. The question is whether you're going to find that contentment by trying to put the band-aid of money or the band-aid of popularity or the band-aid of a GPA or the band-aid of work or sex or success on your wound. These things will not work. They will only provide a false contentment that will quickly wear off. We desperately need something more. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, true contentment. Martin Luther said, this last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but he says it's addressed precisely to the most upright, to, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended any of the preceding nine commandments. We've already said this. This commandment doesn't allow any of us to wiggle out of our need for God's grace in the gospel because none of us can say that we have found our perfect contentment in God. We've all broken this, haven't we? So one of the things that the 10th commandment does is that it shows us our need. It shows us how we have disobeyed. But just like we have seen with, with all the other nine commandments, God is not just against things in these ten, ten commandments. He doesn't just forbid. No, in these ten commandments, we ultimately see God's loving heart for us and all that he has for us. And so what he is for in the tenth commandment is true contentment of our hearts. He is for us not being dissatisfied with the trivial pleasures of this world. And he is for us being fully satisfied in his glorious goodness and grace. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to be content or to be satisfied in God? We're physical people. What does it mean to find our satisfaction in him? Well, it means that we have tasted and seen that he is good. 
We have tasted and seen that he is better than having that that perfect career or that Instagram-worthy house or that ideal relationship. True contentment means that we know that the desires of our hearts can never be fulfilled in earthly things alone. Again, your desire for relationship, your desire for a fulfilling career, your desire for joy and peace and hope, they are found only in the God who put those desires in you. He gave you your desires and he is ultimately the only one that can satisfy them. And despite our great sinfulness, despite our covetousness, which has led us to pursue many other things, God still desires to satisfy our hearts. Christian, we will only be content And we will only be truly happy when we consider what God has done for us. Oh, what contentment can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider these truths, church. Consider the glorious reality that God so loved the world, he so loved you that he sent his only son to die for you. Consider these truths. Consider that God's plan of redemption, it worked. He came and he lived and he died and then he rose from the dead as proof of God's power for our salvation. Consider these truths that Jesus looked at his disciples before he went back to his father and he says, I know you're gonna be lonely, but guess what, disciples? I'm gonna send a better helper to you. I'm gonna send my Holy Spirit to dwell with you, to guard you, and to strengthen you every day. Consider these truths. Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians chapter one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Church, consider this. Consider this. You do not need to covet your neighbor's house or wife or job or anything else because you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Consider this with me. God has forgiven you of your sins. He has forgiven you of your great covetousness. You who deserve the wrath of God because you have endlessly pursued things that are not God. He has come to you and said, through the work of my son, I forgive you. And I wash you clean from all of those sins that you bear. And I accept you into my family and I will give you eternal life. Church, this is where contentment is found. It's found in remembering the gospel and all that we have in the gospel. You know, I remember about six years ago when we were getting ready to plant this church. We moved down a a year before we planted It was a very hard time for my family because my family, my wife and my children had to give up many things in order to move down to Delaware to help start this church. It was very costly. And so I remember when we finally sold our house up in Westchester and went went to closing on the house and then you have that short period of time when you sold one house but have not bought another one when you actually feel wealthy for the first time in your life, right? You know what I'm talking about? You actually have money. And so in that moment, Ashley and I wanted to, to find a way to, to bless our children in a particular way. And so on the way home from closing, we stopped by the bank and we just withdrew $300. If you divide 300 by the four kids, it's $75 per kid. And then we got home to the kids and the fun began. Now, please understand, when I say this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, it truly was. We didn't even give an allowance to our kids. If they, they were really young back then, if they found a penny in the couch, they would have been excited. This is not normal for us. 
But Ashley and I went home and we gathered the kids around and we said, guys, guys, you have done so well. You've worked really hard. You've done it with joy and with love and we want you to know how, how grateful we are and how much we love you. And in that moment, I pulled out four crisp $5 bills and I gave them each one and their minds were blown. They're like, what? They started planning what they're gonna buy with their $5. They couldn't afford any of the things they said. But they were so excited. But then a moment later, I kind of let them go their way, and then I said, actually, guys, come back, come back. And I, I reached into my pocket. I said, we are so proud of you and so thankful to God for you. We want to give you this as well. And I pulled out four crisp $10 bills, and I gave them to them. I'm pretty sure they thought Dad had lost his mind. The stress of planning a church had caught up to him. But then we went about our day, and we did it a few more times. And they just could not believe what was happening. And then all of it continued when I, when I stopped the, for them for the last time and I told them how proud I believe their heavenly father was of them and how their diligence during the season was greatly pleasing to him. I reminded them that Jesus is the greatest treasure that this world has to offer and that we should be willing to leave house and home in order to follow him, but also how he loves to give good gifts to his children. And I took out the biggest bill that I had given to that point and they lost their minds. One, some of them thought that they were going to faint out of their excitement. Friends, what we have in the gospel is beyond our wildest imaginations. God has done such great things for his people. It should make us dizzy with excitement. It is truly almost too good to be true. And so here is where true contentment is found. It is found in seeing God's goodness in the gospel. And so trusting his love for us, which has been proven through the sending of his son to die for us, it is so seeing and trusting and believing this in our heart that we can be content in every circumstance and in every season of trial. I know it's hard, but listen, we don't need that perfect marriage in order to be content. I know it's hard, but you don't need your reputation to be vindicated in order to be content. I know it's hard, but you don't need to have sex with that person in order to be content. I know it's hard, but you don't need to numb yourself with alcohol and drugs in order to feel peace. We don't need those things because we know that even in our sorrows and disappointment, God has met our greatest needs in Christ and he promises to meet every other one of our needs as well. L listen to this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Half of us are like, yeah, right. There's no way we can feel that. What's that sweet inward frame of spirit? It sounds so idealistic. It sounds impossible. But Christian, it is possible for us because of the gospel. We are able to have this frame of spirit when we know God and all that he has done for us. Those who know Jesus can be content in every circumstances. Those who know Jesus do not need things. The book of Hebrews is all about the treasure that Jesus is. And at the very end of this glorious book about the, the beauty and worth of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
You can be content because Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those who know this Jesus do not need things. Those who know this Jesus also do not need an easy life to get by. Paul the Apostle is such a glorious example of gospel contentment for us. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those who know Jesus, like Paul, do not need an easy life. Those who know Jesus simply can't believe that they're saved. They can say with Paul from Philippians chapter 4 that because of Jesus, they have learned to be content in every situation. Church, this is power for our lives. This is strength to live your days in a way that is pleasing to him, week in and week out. I, I've, been, I've been studying church history lately. It's fascinating to, to read about the early church and what a powerful effect it had on the world around them and on the Roman Empire in particular. But the early church did not have influence in their culture by fighting for power and position. No, they had their influence by being content in Jesus. The Roman Empire and many historians from that day could not believe what they were seeing in these strange people called Christians. These strange men and women called Christians, they were willing to be wronged. These strange Christians were honest business people. They did not cheat. These honest Christians were humble when slandered. They, they did not retaliate when attacked. These strange people called Christians gave their possessions away and shared all that they had with others. These strange Christians were courageous even to the point of persecution in the Colosseum to the point of death. Things that normal people coveted and lived for, the early Christians simply did not need. Why? Because they were content in Jesus. Because they knew the Lord. And therefore the world took notice of them and said, what do these people have that has made them so content and so powerful? Paul says in 1 Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain, and it was for the early church. Oh, Redeemer Fellowship, don't you long for this sort of life. Don't you long for the world to look at you and to see something different about you something that stands out. Don't you long to show the richness and the beauty of Jesus? We will do this, church family, only when by God's grace we obey the 10th commandment. And we will obey the 10th commandment when we see and value and seek contentment in the greatest treasure this world has ever known, which is Christ. Do you know the old song, It Is Well With My Soul? It's my favorite hymn that has ever been written, and it speaks of contentment in Christ. No matter what your circumstances happen to be, no matter what trials we are called to endure, the man and the woman who are content in the Lord and not coveting after things that are not theirs, we can be happy in him, not looking to something from their neighbor, but rather looking to Jesus. They can say, it is well with my soul. Listen to these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. In other words, when things are going well. When sorrows like sea billows roll when things are bad and we feel like we're drowning in the bad. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. 
He says, though Satan should buffet, come against, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, praise God, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He says, oh, Lord, haste the day. And we say, amen. Haste the day when the face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. My sight shall become life. Even so, it is well with my soul. Would you stand with me as I pray?